in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and it says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to them god chose to make known how great among the gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is christ in you the hope of glory him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in christ for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Lord, as we just spend some time together uh, with you in your word, we just ask God that uh, the word of God would pierce our own hearts, that you would find, Lord, our hearts to be soft and supple for the seed of your word. We pray, Jesus, that the written word would lead us to you, the living word, and so transform us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. Grab a seat there. All right, letter to the Colossians. We've been working our way here through chapter one. Paul is, uh, he penned this. He was in Rome. He was in incarceration, in prison while he wrote this letter. And we come to this section now, verse 21. I want you to just look at your Bibles. You'll notice this, that it begins, verse 21, with the words, and you, you, the pronoun here, uh, changes from the previous subject matter the attention of the subject has changed and paul has been speaking what he's been speaking about where we were last week was he was talking about jesus look for a moment at verse 15 in your bibles you'll see this that it says this he is the image of the invisible god that is speaking of christ the pronoun in verse 15 is a reference to jesus and Paul goes on, as we saw last week, to say many awesome things. I don't know how else to say it. Awesome things about Jesus. He's the, the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. By him, Paul said, all things were created. Things in heaven and things on earth. Things visible and things invisible. Things material, things spiritual. Paul says, all things were created through him and for him, and he holds all things together. Paul said, he is the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And it all, everything exists for him in this sense that he would have preeminence in everything. Paul said, God was pleased that all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, he has made peace by his blood on a cross. 
So the subject has been Jesus. And we looked at those verses last week. In fact, I called the, the message last week Christology 101. But now in verse 21, this section where we get going here, the pronoun changes and it's the pronoun you. And it identifies that the subject has changed from Christ to the church, from Christ to the body, from Christ to the believers in Colossae. So the you, this has to do with people. It has to do with mankind. It has to do with the saints of God, those in the church. And so this morning, I'm calling this message Anthropology 201. Uh, simply speaking, this is the study of humans, okay? This is the study of man. If Christology, what we were talking about last week, is the study of Christ as it relates to Jesus, anthropology is the study of humans. So Anthropology 201 this morning. Um, so you, maybe you're thinking, well, why not 101? Shouldn't we be, shouldn't we be starting at 101? And in my mind, I would say this. Well, Anthropology 101, if we're going to go there, we need to go to Genesis chapter 1. Wouldn't you agree? If we're going to talk 101, then we have to talk about the image of God in man. We have to talk about the fact that Genesis chapter 1 tells us that the Lord made man in his likeness and in his image. And so this morning, we're just going to operate from the premise we've already had 101, okay? We, we, understand, we want to say we, in faith, believe Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to reestablish those facts in this lesson. This is 201, okay? This is anthropology 201, and we want to find out what Paul has to say. He's spoken about Jesus, and he said amazing, amazing things about Jesus. In fact, just as I've been stewing on it, I'm just like, man, verses 15 to 19, it has to be one of the most loveliest passages of scripture about Jesus and all of the Bible. And now, in contrast, he changes the subject and he says, and you, and you, and he's speaking directly to the people to whom this letter is addressed. But I, I love that, that, this, that though this letter is nearly 2,000 years old, it reaches forward and it addresses us. Anthropologically speaking, what Paul says applies to all of us. This is about who we are. And he's going to do two things. Firstly, he's going to do this. He's going to contrast us to Jesus. He's going to contrast the human position, the human character, the human nature, compared to that of which he has just spoken of, all the loveliness and beauty and awesomeness of Christ. So he's going to contrast, and then he's going to speak about how Christ has created an agreement between himself and his creation. He's going to speak how there is an agreement, and there is harmony, and there is peace with God and man when we are in Christ. So first, the contrast. So here it is. He's going to talk about man, and I'm just going to say this. This is the antithesis of everything we've just read about Jesus. This is the complete opposite, verse 21. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So, so Paul, as he sets this contrast, he says this, you were once alienated. I do love this because it's past tense, right? This is your state prior to Christ. This is your position in life before God 
prior to Jesus. But it's important to understand this so that we can value what we have in Christ. He says, you were alienated. Which a good word to define alienation is the word estranged. It's this idea that your relationship with God was estranged. There was no sense of closeness, no sense of intimacy or relationship with God or with Jesus. You were shut out from fellowship. You were shut out from intimacy. Estranged or alienated is good words. Those are good words to describe life without Christ. You know, I I would say this. In your mind, picture maybe for a moment a husband and a wife estranged from one another. And the problem of that situation of estrangement is there's no way to navigate some sort of reconciliation. If I say a man is estranged from his wife, well, we know that's far worse than being separated. I mean, if you're separated, there's a hope of reconciliation. But when you're estranged, it means you're completely alienated from one another. Paul says, you are alienated from God. He says, you are hostile in mind, literally meaning in your thinking, you had postured yourself as an enemy of God. Hostility has this sense of antagonism to it, malice, spite. It's not, it's not a passive hostility. You were actively hostile in your thinking towards the Lord. And he said, you were doing evil deeds. It wasn't just your thinking. It wasn't in just your thinking that you were at war with God. It was in your actions as well. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. I was thinking about it like this. It's like you had your dukes up, you know. You're ready for fisticuffs. Your fists were clenched and you were actively participating in evil because of your thinking that was so hostile to the Lord. And what we read here and what we come to understand is this, that this is the condition of all men. This is anthropology 201. This is the condition that shows us there is a need for repentance, for there to be reconciliation because you and God were estranged from one another and you were hostile. But then Paul tells us an agreement was made. Harmony came. The peace that came between the the two parties came because of Christ. The the two parties being you and Jesus or you and God. And he now speaks in the present tense. Look at verse 22. He says this. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he says now in Christ you are reconciled. Present tense. That means You've been brought back into right relationship. You've been brought back from a state of hostility into a relationship of harmony, a relationship of peace. You had your dukes up. You had your fists clenched, and they've come down. You can put them down now because of Christ. And he's done this in his body, in his flesh, by his death. And I love this because... The thing, uh, the, the reconciliation didn't happen by something you did, is what Paul's telling us. You were alienated. You were estranged. In your mind, you were hostile. You were doing wicked deeds. Then God did something in his love. He sent his son. 
And nothing you did made reconciliation possible. Christ did it. He did it all. And Paul says he did it in his body by his blood. He bore your sin in his body and he took the wrath of God on your behalf. He bore wrath in his body in order, Paul says, that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's reconciled you. You've been brought back into right relationship. In fact, I love this. I was thinking about this, this idea of reconciliation. The book of Corinthians tells us that he has even, now that you've been brought back into this right relationship, given you the ministry of reconciliation. Church, I want to remind you, we're all ministers. We're all ministers. Ministry isn't restricted to the pastor or the church staff. We're all ministers and we have a ministry from Christ, the ministry of reconciliation. You know, uh, fairly regularly, I have people will express to me uh, frustration about teaching with regards to sin. You know, I'll hear like, hey, don't talk about sin or, you know, that was a great message, except, you know, you talked about sin. Believe me, it actually happens. You think, no, people think that. Yes, it happens. They say, don't speak about sin. But I have to say this as we're working through this text this morning. I don't understand that thinking because as Christians, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, which infers there is alienation. It infers there is estrangement and the message of reconciliation is meaningless to the person who doesn't understand why there is separation. Why is there this separation? They don't understand the hostility in their own minds. And the ministry of reconciliation is to tell people there is forgiveness. There is life. There is salvation in Christ. And this is how you find it. Forgiveness and reconciliation involves two parties. Two parties. You and God. You know, in our culture... We hear lots of talk about like, you know, I need to forget. You need to forgive yourself. You need to practice self-forgiveness. You know, you, you get to quit hanging on to that stuff and you need to forgive yourself. But I would tell you that this, that this is actually like strange. And in some ways it's a pagan concept. What you need is forgiveness in Christ. Forgiveness of yourself. You need forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you speak about self-forgiveness, that's like treating yourself as the source of your own salvation. Well, if I forgive myself, then I'll be free. No, no, no. Freedom comes from Christ. I, I, I can totally understand the idea that when Christ forgives me, I need to receive that forgiveness. I need to learn from that forgiveness. I need to learn the difference between guilt and condemnation for something that I've done and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But when I understand my sins are forgiven and, and I lay them at the cross, then yes, Christ imparts to me power and life in the areas of my brokenness and my pain. Self-forgiveness won't work for you. Forgiveness, by definition, involves two parties. You and God. You and God. And Paul tells us this was the purpose of Christ's death on the cross. 
to bring all things created by Christ and for Christ into harmonious relationship with Christ. In fact, he tells us here that the purpose of reconciliation is our own holiness, personal holiness. I love this. See, God did not make peace so that we could continue living as rebels. God did not make peace so that I could continue in the hostility of my mind. God did not make peace through his son so that I could continue living out evil deeds and actions. You know, it's a really easy thing to do to twist the idea of God's love and say, well, if God loves me, if he loves me in the way I am living right now in this moment, present tense, and if he desires nothing but reconciliation, well, then clearly sin doesn't matter. I can do whatever I like and God will still love me. That is the message our culture is preaching. It's the message many churches are embracing. So this is important. The fact that man is loved by God does not give us carte blanche to do whatever we want. To do whatever we may like. The love of God lays upon us an obligation we're going to find out here. God loves you enough to save you out of sin. God loves you enough to not leave you estranged from him. God loves you enough that you would not be left in this position of alienation and hostility in your thinking and doing evil deeds. He does not love and reconcile you to himself so that you can continue on your path of sin. He calls you to a life of holiness, to conformity to Christ. The love of God demands repentance of sin. And the cross of Christ makes it possible. The cross of Christ makes reconciliation possible. So the love of God does not say, you're okay as you are. You know, you can't change. You'll never change. You're, you're powerless in this battle with that issue of sin or temptation. You know, you're okay just the way you are. The love of God says that apart from Christ Jesus and the work of the cross, you will die in your sin. But God says, because I love you, I sent my son to reconcile you and to transform you to be holy. Paul says, the, the purpose of reconciliation, church, this is important, is personal holiness. Your life set apart unto God. You say, what's all, what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart unto God. It means, Lord, because of what you have done for me in Christ... I set my life aside and apart from the things of this world, apart from sin, to live for you. I'm set apart unto God. And I want to tell you, this is an incredible promise that we're given in Scripture. That Jesus has reconciled you to make you holy, blameless, and above reproach before Christ. Isn't that amazing? Before God. An incredible promise. Go, wow, holy? Me? <laughs> Blameless, above reproach. Do you know what that means, above reproach? It means that Christ will not take a position of disapproving you before God. A position of disapproval. He will not rebuke you or scold you before the Father. You've been set apart unto him. You might say, well, I, I don't really feel very, very holy. How many of you are feeling really holy this morning when you came to church? Maybe, you know, fighting with your spouse on the way here ready to throttle one of your kids before you left the house or, 
You're like, wow, I, I didn't sleep very much. It was a battle to get to, to church. I, I blew it at work this week. I, I lost in a battle with temptation. I, I don't feel very set apart unto God. Well, let me remind you what the word of God says. Set your feelings aside and trust the promise of God that we're given here. Jesus is going to present you holy. Jesus is going to present you blameless. Jesus is going to present you before the Father above reproach. Our true dignity and and destiny are found only in our relationship with Christ. I love 1 John 4, 17. My brother-in-law, Ben, was talking about this when he was here uh, two weeks ago. You guys didn't get to see them, but they're going to be back in uh, the first, last week of July and first week of August. And we were talking about the Lord, their home on furlough from Indonesia, dropping off their first kid from the mission field back here in Canada. And uh, he was talking about how the Lord was speaking to him from 1 John 4, 17, which says this, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. He said, you know what the love of God, you know what God in his love is trying to do? He is seeking that we would be so perfected that we would be confident when judgment comes. That we would say, Lord, I'm so secure in the love of Christ that I'm not afraid of the day of judgment because I know I'm hidden in Christ. That's love perfected. Church, Jesus wants you to be confident. Jesus wants you to be assured. Jesus wants you to be perfected. Jesus wants you to know your identity in him. He wants you to be assured of your salvation and that you would not be like a ship tossed on the waves of the sea, tossed to and fro. But Paul says there's a clause in all of this and this desire of the Lord. There's an if clause in everything that he's been saying. There's, there's a clause, there's an if, there's a stipulation in all of this. Look at verse 23. He says, if you indeed continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The clause in all of this is that you continue in faith. That you continue in faith. I mean, Paul seems to be acknowledging, you know, as you read this, that this church is at a crossroads. They've got false teachers in there. They're presenting a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different message, and the church is at a crossroads, and he's instructing them. You have to continue living the life of faith in the gospel. That means you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get this false teaching out of the church. It's threatening to take you in a different direction. And you have to remember that faith is not simply the way that you entered the kingdom, faith is the way that you live all your life in the kingdom. And so reconciliation with God has an obligation attached to it. The obligation is this. Stand fast in faith. You know, our boys club, we didn't get to see the pictures, but uh, they actually got two coho this week, keepers. You know, we filleted them up. All the boys took home some meat. Uh, not enough to share with their families, but they had a nice dinner themselves. And um, we had to throw back a spring, and the boys were handling the rods, so we, it was hot out there. It was awesome. Uh, I mean, the fishing was hot. Uh, we had to 
you know, the boys were handling the rods, so they, lo- they lost a few. We could have had a few more in the boat. But with the boys, you know, we have a little motto. When we were reeling in our fish, their faces would just light up. And we have this motto because our theme verse is Deuteronomy 13.4. And we say, hold fast. And they all put their fists in there. They say, hold fast. I mean, hold fast in faith to Christ. So our fish were coming out. We'd get it in the boat. Hold fast. You never heard them do a hold fast so loud ever. It was awesome. Reconciliation with God has an, an obligation attached to it. And the obligation is this. That you stand fast, that you hold fast in the faith and not abandon the hope of the gospel. Paul speaks here about being, you know, rooted, founded, grounded, not being moved from the hope of the gospel. And it's that perseverance in faith that proves the genuineness of faith. That's what I want to tell you. I mean, faith keeps on going. Faith keeps on holding on. This constant life posture. That's what faith is. A life posture that says my life is dependent upon the grace of God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just cast my life upon Jesus. That he would impart to me his power and his strength. And so I I would actually say this from Paul. This is a warning to this church about backsliding. You know, the truth is false doctrine will come, won't it? False doctrine will come. False teachers will come. There will be winds of change in culture. But the Colossians, the church, the church has to hold fast. The church has to remain true to Christ. The church has to remain true to his gospel. And Christ is glorified in us when we persevere in faith. So the gospel should do this for you. The longer you walk with Christ, this is what the gospel should do. The gospel should produce in you greater stability, greater assurance, greater steadfastness in faith. You know, as your faith is active in Christ, the ground will just get firmer underneath your feet. Amen. I mean, if you walk with Jesus for a while, you can testify to that. And so this clause is important because as we know, this if clause, hold fast in the faith, It's important because as we know, a relationship with Christ is a dynamic reality. There's no neutral ground. There's no sitting on the fence. You are moving forwards in maturity or you are backsliding. And lots of times, I mean, it's happening in a day, right? In a week, I'm backwards. I'm going forwards in Christ. But we're making forward progression in Christ. There's there's no neutrality. It's a dynamic relationship. Faith is holding fast. And so this clause is the call to have active faith, which will produce stability. Paul says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all of creation. I love this. You know, Paul reminds us that God has made himself known to every creature. Amazing. God has made himself known in all of creation. Just look out those windows for a moment. I mean, look out there. God has made himself known. Creation around, Romans chapter 1. Conscience within, speaking to our hearts. The conscience giving continual messages to people that there is a creator. There is a God. And this is God's design. His creation. Outer witness and inner conscience. And God is fair. 
He's a just judge. And he will judge each man according to their knowledge of him. That's what Romans chapter 1 and 2 tell us. So Paul says the gospel is clear. It's made known. And he says this of himself. I've become a minister of this gospel. The word is, uh, the Greek word for minister there is the word diakonos. It's a word uh, that we translate into the English often, not as minister, but as deacon. Say, oh, a deacon in the church. It, it means a minister or a servant. One who executes the commands of another. And it especially holds this idea of one who is a servant of a greater authority, of a king. Paul says, I became a servant of the gospel. My life exists to serve the gospel to the glory of God. Paul became this. I like this. He said, I was made into this. That's what God's making you into. A servant of his gospel. And to me, this is a wonderfully mature thing for us to believe as followers of Christ, that God calls us to be servants of his gospel. Being servants of the gospel is not a role that was exclusive to Paul. We're called to this. I mean, we recognize he was an apostle. He was commissioned in a special way. But he was at the center of God's will in his life when he was preaching the gospel. You're at the center of God's will in your life when you're living for the gospel, for the message of Jesus. And in recognizing his calling, Paul actually says this, he was even grateful when the calling led to suffering. He was even grateful when it entailed suffering. He didn't complain, but rather he rejoiced in the afflictions because he was serving God in Christ. Remember, he's in jail as he writes this. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now that's a, that's a, that's a tough verse right there. Do you read that and go, what is going on in that verse? You know, Something's lost in translation there. Because it seems like in a sense that he's saying there's something lacking, lacking in the work of Christ. There's something lacking in the suffering of Christ. And somehow, you know, the suffering of Christ is perfected or it's finished when I suffer along with him. In, in fact, this is where the Catholic doctrine of purgatory comes from. Which says, you know, after death, sinners are held in a place after this life where they suffer to, you know, put the finishing icing on the cake for their atonement before they go into heaven. This is not what Paul is suggesting. Let me say this just clearly. There is nothing lacking in the work of the cross. There is nothing working, nothing lacking in the blood of Jesus. There is nothing lacking in the body of of Christ. Jesus perfectly bore the wrath of God and atoned for our sins. So Paul says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking. What he's saying is this, I'm participating in the suffering of Christ, spiritually speaking. Participation in the suffering of Christ is a spiritual experience that comes through our union with Jesus, when we pick up our cross and follow him, and it might mean physical suffering like it did for Paul. We know this. Jesus said this. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. Christ suffered once for sin to bring us to God. 
Paul, Paul can't add anything to that. You and I can't add anything to that. Christ suffered in death to save the church, and Paul suffered in life to help the church. He recognized he was helping the church when he suffered for the gospel. There's nothing Paul is doing to add to the work of the cross. Rather, he's participating in the suffering of Jesus. Again, he's in jail. And he's in jail because he was preaching the gospel. That's why he got there. And so he says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul says, my, my ministry was to make the word of God more fully known. And he speaks of this mystery that was hidden for ages and now has been revealed. Now, this is interesting because these false teachers in Galatia, we've identified them in previous week. They're, they're Gnostic teachers, okay? False teachers who love the idea of this word mystery, you know. Paul's actually playing on them here. It's like giving them bait right here, okay? I like that. I always like that about Paul, okay? Paul functioned on a good level of sarcasm to the enemies of, of Christ, and he speaks of this mystery, and these, these, these Gnostic teachers loved esoteric teachings, like teachings that they said were, these are things hidden from the common people. They're only revealed to a, a few, but Paul says this, and we've talked about this in previous weeks. He, he intentionally uses this word mystery to say there's no mysteries anymore. There are no mysteries. Everything is revealed in Christ. The Messiah has come. Let me tell you something the secret societies they don't have any secrets they have no spiritual secrets they're bankrupt you know the divine orders the cults who claim our message is the only way they don't have anything they're bankrupt new age teachers gurus who somehow claim that they have more light than what the gospel declares they're liars they are false teachers. There is no more light than what the gospel declares in Christ Jesus. The gospel reveals the whole picture to anyone who would listen with regards to God and man. In fact, this word translated mystery always in scripture refers to a mystery revealed. It, re it references something that was once hidden and the cover's been lifted off. It's been made known. So what is this mystery that was made known? Well, Paul says this, the mystery is the content of everything I preach. And he says this, the mystery was hidden in past generations, but it's been made known. And he says this mystery has two elements to it. And they reach their pinnacle in Christ. The first is this, the Gentiles are included in the plan of salvation. In other words, salvation is for everyone. It's not restricted to a Jewish nation or the people of Israel, the mystery that was hidden, because that's what they thought for a long time, is that salvation is for all. You're going to notice this as we read this through, that Paul is going to use the word many times, everyone. I'm going to say this. Paul didn't believe in limited atonement. That's for my Calvinist friends, okay? The Gentiles, all the gospel is for all. For God so loved the world. 
And then Paul is going to tell us the other element of the mystery is this. The mystery is actually a person. It's not secret information that only this cult has. The mystery is not secret information held by this secret society. The mystery is actually a person who is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look at verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That phrase, Christ in you, it speaks of the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ in the hearts of believers in the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, I was so excited when we were getting together this morning. I was just looking forward to church because I knew Jesus was going to be here because he dwells in you, because he lives in you by his spirit. Paul says when, when you receive Christ, Christ does something for you. He enters you by his spirit and he gives you the hope of glory. You know what that refers to? It refers to eternal life. Jesus even said this. He said, to know me is to know eternal life. To know me is to have eternal life. This hope, this hope of glory is always looking forward to what God's going to do. This hope of glory is looking forward to the resurrection. This hope of glory is looking forward to heaven. This hope of glory is looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in the scripture. And I love this because it means this. I don't have to imitate Jesus in this sense. Let me try to explain that. Because this is one thing the false teachers were always trying to do. They say, well, there's mysteries. There's secrets. If you lay hold of this secret and you act like this, then you will participate with Christ. I think in our day, the same sort of teaching is, is cloaked with this word, this phrase, Christ consciousness. Whenever I hear Christ consciousness, church, it's buzzwords to me. I'm like, there's something wrong there. Because it infers that you can be like Jesus. Like he was the Christ. When Paul speaks about Christ in you, he's not encouraging us towards imitating Christ. Oh, you can learn mysteries and secrets and esoteric teachings and Gnostic doctrines from new age gurus. Oh, you can learn them and you can do things like Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not preaching imitation. Listen, he's preaching impartation. He is preaching impartation in Christ. He's saying this, Christ imparts to you. He gives to you as a gift the hope of glory. Look at verse 28. He says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I love this. This was the mission of Paul's gospel. Not that some would get saved. That everyone would get saved. That everyone he came into contact with would meet Jesus and would be conformed into the image of Christ. Like I said before, you know, my Calvinist friends, Paul was not a proponent of limited atonement. And this is amazing to me because false teachers, I'll tell you this, false teachers always preach a system. They preach a, a set of rules, a set of instructions, a set of, you know, mysterious teachings. They preach 
philosophy and empty traditions. Here's what Paul preached, and here's what we preach. Paul preached Christ. Paul preached Christ crucified. We preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified, which is the message of reconciliation, and Christ can impart to you life when you turn from your sin and you turn to him in faith. Because for there to be reconciliation, where, where there's estrangement, where there's alienation, where two people are at war, well, you need to know this. Christ Jesus took action to reconcile you. He took action to reconcile you to your Father in heaven. And he did it by his blood on the cross. He bore sin in his body. And our action towards him is twofold. This is the message of reconciliation. You must repent. You must repent of sin. You have to acknowledge something is broken. Something went wrong. I have actually acted sinfully in rebellion to God. And the second action is this. We place our faith in Christ. We trust in the cross of Christ by which Jesus made reconciliation possible. We confess the name of Jesus Christ. We confess he is Lord. And by his spirit, when we do that, we turn from sin and we turn in faith to him. Christ enters into us. He imparts to us life. He imparts to us hope. <laughs> he imparts to us peace and joy forgiveness. I mean, we could go on and on all day long what he imparts. The power of his spirit to live for him. So with regards to any sense of mystery, the mystery has been revealed. It is what God has revealed about Christ. And Paul says this, him we proclaim. Paul preached Christ and his desire was to Present everyone mature in Christ through the proclamation of the word of God. Look at church. This is what we do when we gather. When we gather, this is why the assembly of the saints is so important. We gather, we read the Bible and we preach the Bible and we, we gather as a church and fellowship and the word of God is central to what we do in our fellowship with one another because we believe this, the word of God will actually do the work of God. The word of God will do the work of God. Okay, I would tell you this right now, as we are preaching, there's a dynamic of the spirit that exists between me, the preacher, and you, the body of Christ. The spirit of God is at work in it. And this, I would tell you, is a prophetic action, the body of Christ coming together and the word of God being at the center. I actually think in our culture and in the church in particular, there's a lot of confusion. And wrap up here in a minute. There's a lot of confusion in the church about what prophecy is. There's a lot of belief that someone expressing the imaginations of their own heart about future things is prophetic. Let me tell you what's prophetic. The preaching of the gospel is prophetic. The preaching of the gospel by the church is a prophetic, prophetic action. Why? Well, Paul tells us. He tells us. When I preach the word, he says, it goes out as a warning. It goes out as a warning. It serves as a warning to hearts. 
When we proclaim Christ, we are warning people about sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And then Paul says, and then not only am I warning, but I'm teaching. I'm informing minds. I'm educating. I'm informing the head. I'm bringing knowledge, making known the mystery of God. There's warning that comes to the heart as the word of God is taught. And there's teaching that comes and informs the mind. And good biblical preaching is prophetic and it involves both the heart and the mind. Paul says, I labor to this end. I would tell you this, preaching should be wise. Preaching should be educational and it should, hopefully this morning, touch your heart by the Spirit of God. You know, I, th- I read that, I'm like, man, I want to preach like Paul. He wanted to present every man mature in Christ. And on a human level, the beauty is, because Christ imparts life to you, you can participate in this. You know, the Gnostic teachers were teaching that, you know, you can't do that unless you learn secret stuff from us. Probably give us some of your money too, you know, at the same time. You, know, you just learn hidden mysteries from us and you can participate. Paul is saying to the church, listen, church, listen, this is important. You can't do this, but the word of God can. You, can't, you and I can't do this, but the word of God can. It's powerful. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. This is the means to work prophetically and to achieve maturity and perfection. It's amazing to me that Paul said his goal was perfection for the church. That's the goal. And it happens through the preaching of God's word because the word of God can change hearts and lives by the power of the Spirit. Verse 29, for this I toil, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. He says, this is my goal, man. This is what I am working towards. It's Anthropology 201, the new man, the perfect man in the image of Christ. 